God's telling Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from his evil way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, and we are dealing with the question of whether God has preordained some people to heaven and others to hell. Pastor Brogy has already indicated that this question of sovereign election, as it is called, is not dealing with individual salvation, but rather a national choice made by God. That is, that God chose Israel to be his special nation from whom Messiah would come. Some argue, however, that Romans 9 verse 22 points to God's individual election rather than this national election. Pastor Brogy reminds us that God does not wish any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. I've had a few people in my 35 years of ministry who have said to me, when I see God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. And Paul would say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you know who you are? You are going to tell the sovereign, all-wise God of the universe something? How dare you, little man, talk back to a sovereign God? And so God, having the last word, he says the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And again, this statement presumes that somehow man has the right to question Almighty God and that man has the right contextually to question the wisdom of God in choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world. Now, the illustration is a national illustration. Paul is speaking here of a clay and a potter. And it comes from the book of Jeremiah. Hold your finger here and turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. If you're new to the Bible, Psalms is about dead center. Find the Psalms in the middle of your Bible and then scan to the right and you will pass Isaiah and then you will come to Jeremiah. Every Jew would have understood the illustration and where it came from. It's a very famous passage of Scripture, almost as famous to the Jewish mind as John 3.16 is to the Gentile mind. Jeremiah 18.10, which we will focus on in a moment, really enlightens us as to what Paul is speaking of here in Romans 9. And this whole section will remind us that the clay has no right to tell the potter what to do. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that was making that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. The Hebrew word here for spoil carries the thought that it was ruined or it was made rotten. Now, the potter didn't make it that way. It was something that was amiss in the clay. And because of that, the clay became spoiled. So speaking here of God's sovereign power, he goes on to say, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Now notice verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, 
Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In other words, you've become spoiled and ruined. And so as the potter, if I so choose, I can remake you into another vessel. And not just you, I can do the same with other peoples and other nations of the world. Look at verse 7. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. And by the way, that ought to be a word of warning as well as a word of encouragement to America. Because this nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, that honored and revered God, that had a deep respect for God, is now waving their fists in the face of God Almighty. And the clay is going to become totally spoiled. And we think, and our leaders think, that they are so much wiser than God Almighty, and things that God calls evil, they call good, and a person's right. And God is not divorced in dealing with the nations of this world. And if He wants to turn the faucet off and bring a national drought, if God wants to deal with America, He can so choose to, and we would be wise to fear Him. So he says in verse 9, Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plan it. Then he says, If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. The picture is clear. Since Israel had marred herself, God as the potter chose uh, not to use her. And so again, he is giving a warning to Israel. And if you know Jeremiah the prophet, he's a pre-exilic prophet. He's preaching to the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's warning them, if they do not repent, then God is going to bring the Babylonians down from the north and carry them away in judgment. And that's exactly what happened. Now go back to Romans chapter 9. The apostle Paul is reminding us of what God did with individuals like Pharaoh that he also does with nations. And as Jeremiah the prophet indicates, whether it's God's dealing with with Israel or the nations around Israel, he is sovereign and able to do as he pleases. God condemns. He has the authority to condemn a pot that he thinks is marred or has been spoiled. But clearly, the illustration that Paul is alluding to here is not that God makes nations evil first and then God responds to what he has made. No, like Pharaoh, who had a free will choice, so did the people of Israel. And if God in his mercy chooses to show mercy and compassion, he can. And if God in his wisdom chooses to harden, he can. But we'll see in just a moment when a person or even a nation of persons hardens himself, then God acts out of his will and out of his sovereign character. God is the one who prepares some vessels for destruction, and God is the one, as we will see, who will prepare other vessels for mercy. 
And again, what Paul teaches here in Romans 9 is nothing new to a Hebrew, is nothing new to the Jewish mind, because God is dealing in this chapter not with individual election, but all the way through with nations. I've chosen the nation that will come out of Isaac over the nation that will come out of Ishmael. I've chosen the nation that will come out of Jacob over the nation that will come out of Esau. God makes it crystal clear. Now look at verse 21 where he asks, the third question. He says, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? In other words, doesn't the potter have authority over the clay? Does he confer with the clay? Does he say to the clay, what would you like me to make out of you? Instruct my hands? Of course not. The potter is sovereign. He has a right to do as he pleases. And if God chooses to demonstrate divine grace and compassion, then he can do it. And we have no right to question his wisdom. And just as a potter has a right over a piece of clay to make it what he wants it to be, if God chooses to show compassion on Israel, he can. And if God chooses to harden Israel, he can, because God God is God and he answers to no one. And if we think that God is unfair in showing mercy, when we think wrath should have been shown, and if we think God is unfair in showing wrath, when we think mercy should have been shown, then we are taking the role of the potter when we are nothing but a lump of clay. Now that's the rightness of God's sovereign choice. Secondly, Knowing that none of us are qualified to argue with God, I also want you to notice the reason for God's sovereign choice. This is a difficult section, so pay attention. Verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? The objects or vessels of wrath, depending on your translation, are the unsaved nations of the world. And so when the Bible describes here someone prepared for destruction, what precisely does that mean? Remember, the reference from Jeremiah 18 is describing God's dealing with nations and specifically with the Jewish nation. And again, that's been the thrust all the way through this chapter. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, as my hyper-Calvinist friends do, let's ignore the context of 9, 10, and 11. Let's say like they do that God is done with the Hebrew people, that there's no significance in Israel becoming a nation or anything like that, that God has no specific future plans for the people of Israel. Let's understand it the way they do as John Calvin understood it. He knows better now, of course. But let's just say for the sake of argument that that's what's going on in this passage. Let's take their presuppositions and look at verses 22 to 23 and see if their conclusion is even right with those presuppositions. Now remember, we've seen there's a technical difference between the word predestination and election. But in common English usage, the doctrine of predestination is usually typically uh, used to describe some that God has chosen to heaven and some God has chosen to hell. That's better 
used with the word election and not predestination because predestination in the Bible is God, once a person is saved, committing himself to finishing that salvation. That God has predestined a saved baby Christian to an end, namely that he will be like Christ. Whereas the doctrine of election in the Bible is God choosing some to be saved and not choosing others to be saved. And again, it's not an issue, does God choose us? Because it says he does before the foundation of the world, but how does God choose us? Now, in Calvin's theology, he wrote a classic work. I've read it cover to cover. It's called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. I told you he wrote it just two years after he was saved. But because he believes God is done with Israel, because he started with that, when he came into Romans 9, he saw that God chose some to be vessels of mercy, namely he created some for heaven, and he created others for hell. But I don't want to put words in his own mouth. Let me read out of his own document. He says, and I quote, The eternal decree of God by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man, not all are created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or death. Now again, for the Calvinists, they would object to my position that God's election was based on foreknowledge, foreknowledge meaning prior knowledge. Because they would say that if man had any say in his salvation then that makes faith a work and we are not saved by works. And they play around with words and they do a lot of mental gymnastics. But listen, faith is not a work, but it describes the decision we must make. If I were to take the car keys that are in my pocket and offer you my car as a gift, for that car to do you any good, you have to receive the car key and agree to take it. Well, the Calvinists would say, yes, you exercised faith, but the only reason you exercised faith is because God first exercised you. And they would say that because man was dead in sin, Calvin taught that a man was regenerated or born again before he was saved. So I remember going and doing some evangelism with one of my Calvinistic friends who asked to join me. And he said, well, that guy's already born again. I said, he's not born again. I said, he thinks you can earn your way to heaven. Oh, he said, he's born again. He said, God's already regenerated him. He, he's going to believe. It's obvious. Well, that's not what the scripture teaches. Regeneration does not take place before conversion. Now, there is a pre-salvation work of God awakening a dead heart, but that's not the same as regeneration. Very clearly in the epistles, like Ephesians 1, Paul wrote in him, he's referring to Christ, in Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice the order. You hear the gospel because you cannot believe the gospel unless you first hear it. Whoever will call on his name will be saved, but you can't call on him whom you have not heard. So he says, after listening to the message of truth, which is articular here, defined as the gospel, and the gospel is the death, burial, and the resurrection. When you listen to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and you believe what it did for you, the Bible says at that moment you are sealed in him. You are regenerated. You are born again. God gives new life to you. 
You see, if one teaches that only certain people that God first chooses can be saved, as my Calvinist friends do, then you make a mumbo-jumbo out of all the whosoever wills in the Bible. Do you remember the Lord Jesus when he wept over the city of Jerusalem? Uh, He came in on that Sunday, that final time. It was Palm Sunday. And they laid down their garments and they waved their palms and they said, Hail him, hail him. But a few short days later, they would be saying, Nail him, nail him. And knowing what is going to transpire that week and knowing the purpose and the reason he came into this world. Jesus weeps over the unbelief of Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Understand, Jesus did not say you were unable, but you were unwilling. And so when you read the parallel text in Luke 19, where it describes the Lord Jesus weeping as he there in the vocative says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. And his heart is broken. This is the biggest charade in the world if they had no choice and no free will. But Jesus explicitly says, I wanted, but they were unwilling. There's an old story about a room full of preachers having a discussion over the doctrine of divine sovereignty. And there's a heated argument concerning the free will of man, what we call Arminianism, that emphasizes that to the exclusion of God's pre-salvation work over the sovereignty of God is described by a Calvinist that basically in the end says you have no real choice. And so there were some hyper-Calvinists who said, well, no one can choose God. God first chooses man. Man does not have a will in his salvation because God in eternity past, however, predestined him. That's the only reason he said yes to the Lord. And God said yes and made some for heaven and he made others for hell. But then there are others who say, no, the Bible says whosoever will may come and that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so there's this heated argument and the room splits down the middle. On one side, those who defend the Calvinistic view of the sovereignty of God. And on the other side, those who defend the Arminian view of the free will of man. And one preacher's left right in the middle. He's caught in the middle. He thinks, well, these Calvinists have to be right. I mean, what they say sounds right because the Bible is clear that we're dead in our sins and a corpse can't respond. And I couldn't respond to my own unless the father first drew me. Maybe I should go over and be with them. And then he thought, but on the other hand, my Arminian brothers are right. I know that the Bible teaches that whoever wants to be saved can be saved. And so not knowing which group really to pick, he said, I think I will go over and be with these fellows who speak about the sovereignty of God. And they saw him coming over and they said, why did you come over here? He said, well, I I just wanted to. I came here of my own free will. And they said, you don't belong in this group. Go over there. So he goes over to the other side, to the Arminian group, and they say, well, why are you coming over here? He said, well, they sent me over here against my will. They said, then you can't come either. See, that's the dichotomy here. People ask me all the time, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? There's degrees of truth in both. I am a Calvinian. Listen, John Calvin interpreted Romans 9.22 the wrong way. 
And he was entirely wrong in his institutes when he said, and again I quote, some are preordained to eternal life and others to eternal damnation. I reject the doctrine of double predestination, the viewpoint that in eternity past, God said, okay, I'm going to make you for heaven and I'm going to make you for hell. You can go to heaven, you can go to hell. Nowhere in scripture does God ever choose anyone ever to be damned. The prophet Ezekiel said this in the 18th chapter. God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Again, later on, the same prophet, Ezekiel 33, say to them, God's telling Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from his evil way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And so in the Bible, damnation is always tied to unbelief, while salvation is always tied to belief. And of course, the Calvinists would recognize that, but he would say there's one exception, and it's Romans 9.22. Hey, listen, if God says something clearly in a verse, you only need one verse for God to say it. Some people say, well, there's just one verse in the Bible. God only has to say something once for it to be true. But the question is, is that what he said in Romans 9.22? Again, let me read it. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, I don't believe these vessels comprising entire nations in the context were prepared for destruction by God. They prepared themselves for destruction. The idea that a child, ever before he saw the light of day, was made by God Almighty for hell, again, I think goes against the tone and focus of Scripture. Now, notice very carefully in your Bibles, you should underline there are two different vessels that are described. In verse 22, he describes vessels of wrath that he says are prepared for destruction. And then if you will notice verse 23, he describes vessels of mercy that are prepared beforehand for glory. Again, this does not mean God is preparing some people for hell and that God is preparing other people for heaven and they have no say in the matter. In fact, if you look at the verb translated 20 in verse 22 as prepared, it's what we call a passive verb. In Greek, it is a perfect passive participle, kartizo. You say, well, that just blesses me, pastor. Well, it will if you go back and you remember your English grammar, something that most of us would choose to forget. When we come to verse 23, Paul will speak of vessels of mercy who were prepared beforehand, and there the word prepared is not a passive verb, but an active verb. An active verb, if you remember from high school English, is when the subject does the action. So there's a big difference between I hit the ball is far different than I was hit by the ball. In an active verb, the subject does the action. We're in a passive verb, the subject receives the action. The first verb, translated prepared, is a passive verb. The second is an active verb. What does that mean? It means that man is not being prepared by God Almighty for hell, but man, by choices he makes is preparing himself to be a vessel of destruction. 
God simply leaves people in their sin that they willingly embrace when they harden themselves against God and they prepare themselves for destruction. And it is a perfect tense in the Greek New Testament, which means that this ruin is an eternal state. Unlike the best-selling book done by emergent pastor uh, Rob Bell called Love Wins, hell, according to the Bible, is forever. And millions of people, unfortunately, will go there against God's earnest desire, but when they go there, they will go there forever and ever and ever. By contrast, in verse 23, he uses an active verb where he describes vessels of mercy for glory. And so while God never takes responsibility for the damnation of a soul except for the fact that he is the divine judge and the final executor, he does take responsibility for the salvation of a soul that God actively works in dead hearts, moves upon people so that people then can freely and really choose. And so when you get to heaven, you will take no credit for your salvation. And when I hear these self-centered, obnoxious testimonies, when people tell me about how wise they were in reading apologetic works and figuring out they have missed the point of the New Testament. The Bible says, for by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And if you ever read a book on apologetics, it's because God put that desire in your heart because it didn't come naturally. But again, the Calvinist takes verses 22 and 23 to refer to personal election and not national election. But even if that is true, the way they interpret the text is faulty. What is in view here is not double predestination. What is in view, as we've seen from Jeremiah the prophet and in the illustrations with Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau, is that of national election. Now, Paul doesn't ignore personal conversion in this chapter. He's already spoken to the fact early on that a person cannot just say that I'm a descendant of Abraham and therefore I'm right with God. He still has to make a choice. But just like God may, in essence, look at a nation as a whole in unbelief, he can look at another nation as one that deserves his blessing. Now, follow this. How many Jews in the early chapters of the book of Acts received Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you do the count conservatively, it's at least 25,000 people. Now, some would say it's much more than that. Maybe it's as high as 60,000. Some commentators have said at least 100,000. But conservatively speaking, 25,000 Jewish people in Acts 1 through 7 are converted and they believe Jesus is Lord. And yet, when John writes the New Testament, he can say in John 1.11, he came, Jesus, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Why does he say that? Because out of the millions of Jews that were on the planet, when Jesus walked on this planet, for the most part, as a nation, they rejected the Lord Jesus. And so when God speaks sometimes of a nation, he can speak of them in a holistic way. That did not mean that everyone in that nation, though the nation was discarded and had temporarily been laid aside and had become a vessel of wrath as seen in 70 AD when Titus Vespucian comes down and wipes out the city of Jerusalem. That didn't mean that every Jew was an unbeliever and went to hell. Any more than it means when in the end, the nations of the world will all come against 
against Israel, the Bible teaches. That doesn't mean that every single individual in those nations went to hell either because people can make their own individual choices within a nation. So the potter never says to the clay, why did you make me like this? The potter has a sovereign choice. The clay never can say that to the potter, why did you make me like this? The potter is never instructed by the clay. To listen again to today's message entitled, God's Sovereign Choice, use the Search the Scriptures app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478 and request the program, God's Sovereign Choice. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we continue our look at Romans 9 and God's sovereign choice. Join us then as we search the scriptures.